Father, be please with us this morning. Each of us in the different situations that we come from, different situations that we go to, we pray that your living and active word would speak into each of our lives. Help us please not to harden our hearts as we hear what it is you say. Speak clearly, for we find it hard to hear you at times. In your son's name, amen. One of the, one of the questions that, that Christians from all ages and stages sometimes, maybe often, ask about life and have every right to ask is this one, why? Why suffering and frustration in my life now? Why this at this point? Why is it so hard? Why did this happen to me? Maybe that's you now. Maybe that's you in the past. Maybe it will be you in years to come. And of course, we can ask it. It's right to ask it. Because we believe that this world is not an accident. That there is meaning. It's not just a question of, of blind, pitiless chance, as Richard Dawkins would put it. For, for we believe in a God who created. And more than that, is intimately involved in this world. And we may not get an easy answer to that question. But I take it we have every right to ask it. Why? Why can it be so hard and tiring and exhausting? And why does it at times feel like I'm just going round and round and round in circles? Not making any progress. I said I'd never do it again, but I find myself here again. And frankly, why is it just such a struggle to get out of bed in the morning? In Numbers 20 and 21, our, our passage for this morning that Matthew read for us, it's a slightly eclectic passage, five little accounts together. I think what we'll see from Moses is something of an answer to that question, perhaps to the Israelites as they head on their way to the land. And so I take it something of an answer for us, not the full picture at all, but at the beginnings of an answer, a starter for ten. Five little accounts on the road. Before we jump in there, I just want to give you, um, it was a week off last Sunday, I recognise that, and you've probably forgotten everything about numbers so far, so just as a reminder, or, or even indeed to catch you up if you've not been around, have a look on the screen. If you were here for week one, hopefully this is a familiar diagram for you. Now it's got some exciting red shots in the middle. We'll come to them in a moment. But do you remember the basic structure of numbers that we said? There were three big teaching slots, three law givings, one at Sinai, one at Kadesh, one on the plains of Moab. And we said there are two journeys in between. And the five shots show us basically where we've jumped in on the story over the, at least the past four weeks, and the fifth one is this week. So a reminder, the first one was the introduction week. We, we were trying to get our bearings, and we said we have a God who speaks. We have a God who is with his people as they are in the wilderness on their way to the land that he has promised to Abraham. It might be hard, but God is with them. The second week, chapters 11 and 12, came through the first journey, if you remember. Do you remember the sin cycles? Remember God's people moaning and complaining and grumbling? First there's the sort of general complaints and then the complaints about food and then the complaints about leadership. And God judges them and the people repent. Moses mediates. 
and start again. And around and around and around. Third week was a really key section. Do you remember they were on the edge of the land? The land that God has promised to Abraham. The 12 spies go in and it looks incredible. It's amazing. It's, it's plentiful. It's just what they wanted. It's what they've been dreaming of. But the people are huge. And the cities are fortified. And they look at the problems. But they don't look at the Lord. And they say they'd rather die in the desert than try and enter the lands. And the Lord says, okay. Fourth week was two weeks ago. And we learned about the water of cleansing. Do you remember the red heifer sacrifice? You've got blood and hyssop and all kinds of red stuff. And they burn it up and make ash. And then you can add water to it. And you've got instant sacrifice to, to produce Cleansing for people, people contaminated by death. Each time they mourn a loved one who dies in the wilderness, they're reminded of their sin and their rebellion, the way they did not trust the Lord on the edge of the land. They were reminded they shouldn't be here. This shouldn't have happened. And so we reach our fifth red spot. You can see we're at the end of the second journey on their way to the plains of Moab. The question this morning really is, why did the writer, why did primarily Moses include these accounts here? Why bother with these five? Perhaps they seemed a bit random to you as Matthew read them for us. Thinking, why has Moses included these? Why has Dan chosen to preach on these? I wonder if it's this. If you flick on a few pages to chapter 33, you don't necessarily have to. That's a sort of metaphorical flick on. But you'll see in 33 verse 38, you can calculate that these accounts here are near the end of the wilderness wanderings. That is, it's almost four decades on since last time. And so Moses recounts this section, I think, because we're meant to ask the question, what have they learned? What have these wilderness wanderings taught the people of God? Have a look at chapter 20 and verse 2. Now there is no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place that has no corn or figs or grapevines or pomegranates and there is no water to drink? Or well, flick on, chapter 21, verse 4 to 5. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way and they spoke up against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there's no water and we detest this miserable food. What have they learnt? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's seemingly nearly 40 years later and they make the same mistakes again. It's the same grumblings, the same sin, the same moaning, the same questions, that they're a scratch record. So if we ask the question, why suffering and frustration in the, the life of the believer, I think sometimes we have to put our hands up and say, 
Well, because we don't learn. Because we don't learn. We keep making the same mistakes. Have a zoom in with me on chapter 20 and verses 1 to 13. And we can't quite believe it as we read it. It, it, it sounds pretty much like we've all, what we've already come across. And it pretty much is, actually. Not only have they been in the wilderness for nearly four decades, for an age, they've also done something very similar already. You can read about it back in Exodus 17. And I think the writer says, you're meant to get deja vu as you read this Meribah account. It's essentially the same issue. It's even in the same basic place. But they've not learned. There are a couple of differences. I think they're worth noting. The first one back in Exodus 17, it was just water they were complaining about. This time it's food and the kind of food they list, just the kind of food they could have had in the land. If only they had trusted God. There's an irony there. Back in Exodus, it's, it's just Moses. Here it's Moses and Aaron. I think that matters in a bit as well. And vitally, I think back in Exodus, the Lord tells Moses to strike the rock and water will come forth. Here that's not the case, and that's a subtle difference. You see what he says in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. It's interesting, therefore, because what Moses and Aaron do here is not what God asks them to do here. This time, God says, speak. Last time, God said, strike. And we don't exactly know why Moses and Aaron don't do as they're meant to do. But instead of speaking to the rock, they speak to the people and they strike the rock. Verse 9, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him, He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to him, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in the community, and their livestock drank. The Lord still is kind, but they don't obey. Different ideas as to why they don't obey. Different thoughts out there. Some think, as he calls them rebels there in verse 10, Something, this is still an example of Moses, like from his early years in Egypt, of setting himself up as a judge between people. Do you remember right back in, I think, chapter 3 of Exodus? He judges the people and, and kills someone for killing an Israelite. So maybe that's what's going on. Some think, as he says, do you see that in verse 10? Must we bring you water out of the rock? It's not that he's setting himself up as a judge. He's setting himself up as a deliverer, as a provider. Not them who's going to bring the water out of the rock, it's the Lord. But Moses puts himself as a deliverer. Some think this is an example of Moses being angry with God. They mostly get that idea from the thing in, that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about the rock in the wilderness symbolizing the presence of the Lord in the wilderness with them. And so in striking the rock, some say it's, a, it's a, an example of Moses being angry with God. Some think it's because Moses thinks he's got God sussed. And because God did it that way in Exodus 17, strike the rock, then God will do it this way in Numbers 20. But he doesn't. 
God is in charge, not Moses. We don't exactly know. But the outcome is really clear. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. The Lord sees it as rebellion. He didn't trust. He dishonored the Lord. And so very starkly, they won't enter the land. It's interesting, Moses and Aaron say to the people, you are rebels. The Lord punishes Moses and Aaron as rebels. The other thing that we need to note that's striking, that's pertinent for this morning, is that these episodes at Meribah are used later in the Bible in a number of places. And they're a warning for us from both Psalms and Hebrews and the writer's there for us not to harden our hearts. So Psalm 95 and verse 8, today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they, did, they had seen what I did. Then the writer of the Hebrews picks up the same episode, Hebrews 3 and verse 7 to 8. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. And again, Hebrews 3, verse 14, 15, this is striking. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As it's just been said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as he did in the rebellion. And so it's with some trepidation. I just want to slow down and think that through. I think we can't just zoom over that. Firstly, we need to say, I take it how we read these verses as Christians are very different from the original hearers, whether from Numbers or Psalm 95. Why is that? Because Jesus was obedient. Because he obeyed where the people did not obey. He is contrasted with the wilderness generation who did not trust God. And no amount of our good works or obedience will get us into heaven, will get us to the promised land, if you like. His account is credited to us. We have the promised land to look forward to because of his obedience, because we are in him as we trust him. And, and some of us need to hear that because maybe assurance is elusive for you. And you wake up in the morning and you're just not quite sure whether you've done enough, whether God is happy with you. And so you need to, to rest in Christ, to trust his finished work for you, to trust his work on the cross. You can have utter assurance. Christ has done it for you. And yet in a room like this, with different people at different stages, different things people are going through, we need to hear different stuff. And so maybe you're someone who's drifting or not listening to his voice, or you're ignoring what he is saying to you? Well, you need to hear the Lord telling us that we're not to harden our hearts. You're not to harden your heart. Maybe you hear his word and you deliberately choose to disobey. Maybe even Hebrews 3.14 is a verse that you need to chew over and meditate on we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction to the end 
Do you see, for those of us in danger of a lack of assurance, trust in the finished work and obedience of Christ for you. You are safe. But for those of us in danger of hardening our hearts, listen and trust and obey what he's saying to you. Do not harden your hearts. So why is the journey hard? For us as Christians, at times, I think we have to say because we don't learn, because we make the same mistakes over and over again, just as with the people grumbling in the wilderness, we're with the Israelites. Just as with Moses and Aaron, even, who thought they knew better than God, we don't learn. We don't learn the lessons that he gives us. Second reason, though, from these verses, I think, is because of other people. And you get the two little accounts, one in chapter 20, verse 14 to 21, and one in 21, verse 1 to 3. People are hard work. It can be hard to live for Christ because of other people. And we get two little accounts here outlining that in these two chapters, two contrasting bouts of opposition recorded for us. There's the first one in 2014 to 21 from Edom, and then a very similar one from 21, 1 to 3 with Arad. So let's just look at each of them briefly. Again, 2014 to 21, Edom. Note the context. God has just said to Moses what? He has just said, you're not going in the land. And what does Moses do? It looks like he's trying to get into the land. Almost as if he's sneaking in by his own means. Again, they had done something very similar in chapter 14. There's a real deja vu going on. But there's no message from the Lord here with Edom. There's nothing to tell them to take up their sticks and move. As you read it, it sounds a bit like sob stories and politics. Listen in verse 15. Our ancestors went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. The Egyptians ill-treated us and our ancestors. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel, brought us out of Egypt. Now we're here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We won't go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We'll travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or the left until we've passed through your territory. And verse 19, the Israelites replied, we'll go along the main road. If we or our livestock drink any of your water, we'll pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. But the Lord hadn't told them to. He had just said, Moses, Aaron, you're not going in the land. And then they try and sneak in. So why can't they get through here? I take it it's his sovereignty in blocking his people, his, his sinful people. At times the Lord just closes the door. This is not the time for them to enter the land. This is not the means or the method that he's prescribed for them. This is not from him. They were to go when he told them, where he told them, and he would provide. And this is a sinful, rebellious detour. And essentially, in his kindness, he, I think, graciously blocks them and says, no. They might have felt frustrated, but he says, no, it's not for you. There's a similar thing then as well the start of chapter 21 with Arad, verses 1 to 3. So we saw God blocking them 
in 20 and 21. I think he protects them. When, when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to him. They completely destroyed them and their town, so the place was named Hormah. It's the same issue, in a sense, as other people. It's opposition. Arad this time, Israel's enemies, and yet here the Lord brings them victory. And do you know, that feels like very good news. We'll come on to this in a bit, but it feels hopeful. It's, it's a story of a new generation. Things seem to be looking up. When they were last here, just seven chapters beforehand... The first generation were, were defeated in battle. Here it's, it's the next generation who looked to the Lord and he is with them. This is the first ever success against Canaanites. And it feels like they've turned a corner. But we'll get there in a bit. What's the difference though with the opposition here? I take it they were looking to the Lord this time, verse two, 21 verse 2. It was about his purposes, doing things his way following his leading, his guiding. They were obeying him. I wonder if we should expect that as well. When we're a people who, who look to him and his purposes and follow his leading and his guiding and obey him, maybe we ought to expect opposition more than we do. Hebrews 12 tells us it was the experience of the one whom we follow. It was the experience of Christ the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It can be hard because of other people. And sometimes we need to hear that. It can just be tiring to live for him. But we like to be liked, and the words of people hurt us. They slow us down and we feel embarrassed or, or like we want to sort of wave the white flag or just be a little less distinctive or ask is it worth it with our friends or our family or our colleagues or our, our teammates or our classmates or whoever we have in our lives. People oppose us because we trust Christ. That can make things hard. That can be very painful. Often it's the people we love the most who hurt us the most. So if I can say, look to him in the midst of opposition, as you seek to live for him, follow the example of Christ, hold your ground. Know the one who endured opposition from sinners. Follow in his footsteps and press on. So why is it hard? It's hard in part because of what we're like and being slow learners. It's hard in part because of the opposition of others. Sometimes though, and this is tricky, sometimes it's hard because of the Lord's discipline. Because he loves us and so he disciplines us. Not as a punishment for our sins in any way. Christ has taken all God's anger against his people's sin upon himself and say so we're not being punished because that would mean sin is punished twice and he won't do that. But at times the Lord uses 
difficult situations, perhaps even choices that we've made to discipline us, to teach us, to train us, to mold us and shape us into his likeness. And so the final two little accounts, we'll spend a bit of time in the first one and more in the second, but for each one, see that the Lord seems to be at work and discipline his people, but also he provides mercy and grace in the midst of it for them. This is very striking. He provides what they need in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the discipline. So the first bit, you see the need for a priest. Let me read from verse 23, chapter 20. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Call Aaron and his son Eleazar and take him up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar for Aaron will be gathered to his people so he will die there. So remember, they didn't do as the Lord said at Meribah. Moses and Aaron will not enter the land. And so Aaron dies, and he's defrocked. But in a sense, it's not all bad news, because he provides another priest. And the language of being gathered to his people there in verse 24 and verse 26 is the language of of being accepted after death. That is, it would be a good death. And although he's defrocked, there might be a hint of shame there, but I think primarily it's because his son Eleazar is to succeed him. Maybe not for the first time we're left thinking, is there a better way of doing this? Is there a better way that we can have a long-term solution? Maybe a a priest who's who's not going to be like Aaron, a priest who's going to be around for longer, who's always going to obey God, who's going to be there to intercede for his people forever a priest he doesn't need to keep needing to be replaced and Jesus comes onto the scene and we're thankful we're thankful because he's the one we've been waiting for so chapter 20 ends Aaron's death and actually in fact this chapter ends as something of a transition because at the start we skipped over it verse 1 Miriam Moses' sister dies at the end it's Aaron Moses' brother here chapter 20 is a generation finishing and they mourn and we're on to chapter 21 and it sounds good it's a Canaanite victory it's new beginnings it's a new era we're hopeful we're excited but no yes it's a Canaanite victory but then look verse 4 they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. So we've seen a need for a mediator, a need for a priest. Now it's a need for a savior. And we think, seriously, have they not learned? How have these moanings gone for you? How has this grumbling worked out these last 40 years? Why snakes? Probably because snakes were a symbol of Egypt. I'm told you could find a cobra on Pharaoh's crown, and so perhaps it's the Lord asking them, do you really want Egypt again? 
a graphic reminder even of what Egypt was like? Do you really not remember what it was like there? Are you really that forgetful? And so we get this cycle again. The people repent, Moses mediates, the Lord relents. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's interesting, isn't it? A bronze pole. Why would you do that? I take it just as the Lord caused the snakes to swarm, he could have caused them to unswarm. Why a snake on a pole? Again, different people think different things on this. We, we can't say, well, they were primitive. They were gullible. They would be used to this sort of stuff. We read it, think it's strange. For them, it wouldn't be strange at all. I, I don't think we can say that. I don't buy that. They would have struggled with this, at least because the law said snakes were unclean, and at least because the law said they couldn't make a, an image of an animal. So what's just happened? Why has the Lord told them to do this? It's a bizarre plan. It sounds foolish. It sounds wrong. To make an image of an unclean thing for them to look at and to be saved and to have life. Shocking and outrageous. The object would have been hateful to the Lord that they were to look at. And yet this symbol of sin, this symbol of sin is the way that the Lord rescues his people. People who have been bitten by snakes. People who, are, who have felt his anger and his judgment. And it's vital we get that. Because, because a millennia and a bit later, Jesus will have a conversation with a man at night. A man called Nicodemus who will come to him. It's in John chapter 3. And Jesus will say this. He will say, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus says the plan is this. He will be like the snake lifted up in the desert as he dies on the cross. And it sounds foolish. It sounds crazy. It sounds shocking and outrageous. The ancient world hated crucifixion. It was a dreaded and a cursed death. It was feared by all who saw it. And, and Jesus says, as I die on the cross, that's how the Lord will bring life. Why doesn't the Lord just get rid of the snakes? Why doesn't he just make them unswarm? Why do the people have to look at the snake on the pole? Because it shows they trust God. It shows it's his plan to rescue them. It shows that they believe in him and have faith and obey. How does the Lord bring life for us? Well, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Do you see, we're to be a people like them who take the Lord at his word and trust him and trust his plan to deal with our sin. Even if it sounds foolish and shocking and offensive, because it's there we find life. 
not wanting to stretch the story too far, but I guess if you've been bitten by a snake, it would be pretty obvious as your arm starts swelling up. And more than likely, you would give it a go and look at the bronze snake, the Lord's plan to rescue you. Our problem is we don't think there's anything wrong. We, we think we're okay, and, and maybe we can think all oh, this God stuff is for other people, and I'm all right, thanks. I, I've not really been bitten by a snake. I'm okay. <coughs> sort of muddling along, all right. And yet as Jesus uses this Numbers 21 story to describe his story, he's saying to us, trust me. Trust me, you're in danger. Look to me. Find life in me. Which feels like an appropriate story to finish on in some fairly tricky chapters, because sometimes the journey is hard. It's really hard for all kinds of reasons, far more than we found in Numbers 20 and 21. Sometimes it is our lack of ability to learn, and we just make the same mistake again and again. Sometimes it's because of other people, people who oppose us, people who make it hard to live for Christ. Sometimes it, we have to say it is the Lord's discipline and sovereign hand at work, in, through, despite that's going on. But, but throughout it all, whatever the hardship, Jesus says, look to the Son of Man. Lift it up for you. And there you'll find life. Let's pray. Father, help us please to be those who keep looking to the Son of Man. He died on a cross for people in danger like us. And Lord, when life is difficult, for all kinds of reasons, help us to keep trusting you, please. Help us to be those who learn lessons. Help us to be those who press on despite opposition. Help us to be those who see your provision of what we need in the midst of hardships. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.